When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's time to break the silence and open up the dialogue around the topics of miscarriage and baby loss. No more shame. No more taboo. Let's ditch it for the sake of our children. The ones who are, the ones who will come. And in memory of the ones who never came to be. This is the Worst Girl Gang Ever podcast. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Worst Girl Gang Ever. Today we have got Danny Benedict here with us who has come to share her story with us all. Um, welcome, Danny. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. So we say this a lot, but um, would you like to start at the beginning and uh, tell us about your experience? That's the best place to start, isn't it? Uh, yes. <laughs> Is. Um, yeah okay so I'm I'm almost five years into my grief journey um February 26 2019 I gave birth to my daughter Olivia Grace um a very boring normal and routine pregnancy and I went into spontaneous labor at 36 weeks and unfortunately had a concealed placental abruption during labour, which was catastrophic. Um, she was starved of oxygen, um, which led to severe brain damage. Um, but she's a little fighter, um, and she lived for five weeks, two days, um, before we, you know, we had to make a really nasty decision to go to a hospice and say goodbye. Oh, I'm so sorry. sorry. Yeah, sorry. it's pretty cool. <laughs> Yeah, it's just awful. And so that was February, which February t- 2019, February 26th, 2019. Yeah. Wow. And um, what, so you say your pregnancy was all completely normal. There was nothing. No. Nothing um, no symptoms. And what about the, the labour itself? Um. Yeah, I mean, she was my first baby, um, so I had no, I mean, you can take all the classes, can't you, and read everything about birth, but until you go through it, it's you just, you don't know. Um, but my labour, looking back and in hindsight, it was certainly not a normal labour. Um, it was very quick. I progressed extremely quickly, um, went from three centimetres to ten and pushing in maybe 45 minutes um excruciating pain back-to-back contractions that just would come up to my throat they felt suffocating and I remember thinking 
is this is this what it's supposed to be like you know mm. um it certainly didn't seem it wasn't what I expected I don't know what I expected but it, it, it wasn't you know um and I, I do remember saying in the labor this is this is too fast this is too fast um she showed signs of distress in labor and and was deselling so they had called the button um which thank god they they did because you know when she did come out she came out in extremely poor i mean she 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 came out basically dead um but they managed to successfully resuscitate um you know so all the neonate doctors were there ready because i was very slightly premature as, as well at 36 weeks um you know thank god they were and they they worked amazingly and they did everything that they should do you know they followed there's a specific you know um hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy that's what she had hie um they followed all the protocol they got her on the cooling mat to try and control the seizures and you know it, everything was just so so quick it just it's a bit blurry now mm -hmm. <laughs> i'm in that protective state of yeah I, I can't remember it too much otherwise it just puts me into a state of frenzy and panic you know yeah and in the the so she lived for five weeks did you say five weeks two days old yeah and olivia was her name olivia grace is her name she's so special she got two first names <laughs> olivia grace that's a beautiful name and what happened following olivia's birth olivia grace's birth so she was very quickly rushed off to the Norfolk and Norwich NICU. Um, we were pre-warned that she might not, she was, she was so severe that, that she might not even make the transfer, you know? Yeah. So I'd given birth. It was a case of do whatever they need to do to me. I got up, I got dressed. I was straight round to see her. Then it was back in the car drive home, pack a bag, it, everything, it, nothing about that experience was a normal delivery, you know. Um, I was walking within a, a very quick time after giving birth because it was just go, 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 you know. That's so, what you had to do, right? Yeah. yeah and it at was the time, with her. like retrospectively, are you amazed that your body just coped? I don't know. Yeah, I, the adrenaline must have just, because I had no pain relief in labour, I had nothing, not even paracetamol because it was so quick I had time for nothing not no gas and air I just I, I, I just did it um and then yeah you, you're you're bleeding and torn and I, I just was up and out the door and you know get in the car get over to the NICU you just yeah I don't know how my body I it, it caught up with me I remember because I think it was about 36 hours after and it was three o'clock in the morning and I I was sitting with her on, you know, still in just a complete state of shock. And I remember falling to the floor. I think I passed out. I, I couldn't stand anymore. I think it all just hit me and my body just, you know, and I just fell to the floor. And the next thing I remember is I sort of woke up from a very deep sleep, however many hours later. It was just a lot. It was a lot. Yeah. And then at that point, presumably your body just couldn't do anymore. No, I think, yeah, our bodies can only cope with so much trauma before, 
you have to protect yourself as well, don't you? You know. Yeah. So, what were doing in the in the NICU for Olivia Grace? What 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 was happening when she got moved there? <laughs> so she was on a, a calling regime, uh, and they call for however long, and then they gradually warm them up again. And that's to um, prevent any secondary damage, brain damage from the lack of oxygen. Um, that was terrifying because we were warned of seizures and I didn't know how she was going to respond to being warmed up. Um, it was, you know, hour by hour monitoring and they do it very slowly and gradually. And it it was just one of the scariest things I think I'll ever have to go through. I was terrified to sit next to her. I was terrified looking at the, the monitors you know um but she was warmed up and um I think she got through it without any seizures but you know every day they'd come around and do their rounds in the morning and they do their tests and see how responsive I suppose she is at that point she was still intubated on every form of of life support and you know and definitely wasn't looking good in those first few days um the consultants were honest you know which i appreciate their honesty but it's that was really hard um and then they so the first thing that they wanted to see was could she you know was the brain damage so severe did it affect her most you know primal reflexes could she actually breathe on her own without a ventilator? Um, and again, we were warned that because of how how bad the brain damage was, um, that that was quite unlikely that she would be able to breathe on her own. But she did. I, yeah, sorry. I remember, you know, I work medical too, so I understand a lot of this. So I remember seeing the, uh, I was watching the ventilator. And I, I knew which part was the ventilator and which part was her. And, she, you know, there was one breath that was her. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's her. That's her. She she did it. She she took a breath. And then it'd be the vent, the vent, the vent. And then she'd do another breath. And then she started to do more and more and more. And I was like her, her cheerleader. I was like, come on, you can do this, you know. And and she did. She, she breathed on her own, you know. So that was kind of, that was step one that was like can she do that because if she can't do that uh a decision would have been made a lot sooner um but she did i was very very proud of her i bet it must yeah. be so hard just standing by and 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 watching all of this happen um yeah. you must feel pretty powerless in the in in yeah. this situation but knowing not knowing whether she's going to survive and and then also if she does what will her life be like yeah and that's I mean that's the thing with you know brain damage a lot of it was that they could never give us true answers you know um they could do all the scans and MRIs and all these tests but because a neonate's brain has so much neuroplasticity and and they can learn how to do things and they'll just do it in a different way. Their, their brain will just, it's incredible. It's so clever. Yeah, it just mm -hmm. figures it out. So 
they could never say, you know, they like I said, they, they didn't think that she'd live through the transfer. Then they didn't think she'd survive the first night. And then it was, okay, we don't think she's going to be able to breathe. And she breathed. And slowly as they were weaning the morphine, she um she started to move her limbs. And there was a bit of a response there. So it was so up and down because we kept getting these moments of hope. And, you know, I just remember saying, I don't care. I I, I will t- I will learn how to take care of her. I there's I can do it. You know, it doesn't we'll, we're gonna love her no matter what anyway. You know, but we will we will just learn how to take care of her. And she, so they kept progressing with those steps, and and you know they weaned the ventilator off, and they were like, okay, she is breathing. Let's extubate. Um, and they did. Um. She needed reintubating. Unfortunately, she crashed. She was about a week old, and uh, within sort of twenty-four hours of being extubated, she did crash, which was, you know, nobody should see CPR being done to their baby. It was terrible. But then they tried again, um, and she did really well, and she had additional breathing support, but just not as in as invasive as a you know a tube down her throat. Um, but unfortunately where I thought we were heading in the direction of stepping down, you know, she was doing really well. Uh, the turning point was she developed this really bad stridor and a laryngomyelia type noise. Um, and basically, they'd said, you know, the brain damage could be, you know, it's affecting her reflexes and, you know, and her vocal cords. And, you know, it was hopefully as she grows up, you know, older, she'll develop some tone and hopefully it will get better and, you know, whatnot. But when they looked further into it, she had bilateral vocal cord palsy. So her vocal cords, because of the brain damage, were paralysed shut. And that means no airway. So without a trachea, she, there was no way. So she fought for 12 days on BiPAP with bilateral vocal cord palsy, which is was just, um, I'm just in awe of what she did, you know? But it was, yeah, too much in the end, so. And how, when did they make that decision or how did you, you know, what happened to make that final decision of going into a hospice? So everything was done, you know, very slowly it was nothing rushed with her you know it was she was extubated the first time at a week old and and then it was okay let's that didn't work so let's just give her another few more days and try again and then it was you know however many days being on the BiPAP machine and then that was again a step down to okay she's doing all right her bloods look good let's put her on just just some nasal cannula you know just very small amount of oxygen support and so it, each step was very slow over that sort of five week period. Um, and it was the Wednesday. We went to a hospi- the hospice on uh, Thursday, the 4th of April. And it was the Wednesday prior that the ENT specialist came and he was the one to diagnose the vo- vocal cord palsy. And that's when, um, because of my background, uh, I, I understood what that meant. That was a, you know, that was a, that's a, we're out of options type deal you know unless I insist on her going to Great Ormond Street to have a a tracheotomy put in um, there is no other way so 
you know, we accepted that that was that. And uh, they got in touch with, the NICU team got in touch with a local hospice. And then it was however many days of preparing, planning, <laughs> making sure that we could do it in the, I mean, there's no word, nicest way possible. I mean, nice isn't the word, is it? The right way for us, what we needed, the memories we needed to make, et cetera, et cetera. And did you have um, family around to support you through all this? Yes, yes, yeah. It was, uh, you know, me and her daddy and grandmas, we were all together. And um, on the final day, we chose that it would just be me and daddy and her, um, you know, in the bed for the first time as a family of three um, while they took the... A compassionate extubation they call it they removed the breathing tube and we just had to wait um, yeah so sorry Danny it's pretty shit <laughs> yeah so what happened at the hospice how did they look after you there because I think really people really don't, don't get the hospice experience do they they would lose their baby mm-hmm. um at the NICU or on the ward? Yeah, so I had um, I had specifically said that I did not want her to pass away in the hospital. Um, I remember hearing so many mums scream, cry when they lost their baby. And it just, like, it's a noise that just haunts me now. And I, I was like, I just, I can't. There's other little babies here fighting for their life there's other mums here you know I can't do this here I need to be somewhere private with her um so the hospice was it wasn't far it was maybe only 20-30 minutes down the road um you know so even that was it was a risk transferring her even for that um but the ladies from the hospice had come and they, you know, talked us through. I went to see the hospice before we went there. I told them, you know, there was a there was a cot in the room and I broke down when I walked in. I said, why is there a cot in here? That's not her bed. It's not her bed. You know, take it away. I didn't I didn't want it, you know. So they made sure that it was as much, you know, for us and our needs as it could be. You know, we had her baptised in their lounge, um, their local priest came and just did something small with us and that meant a lot and um they were very very helpful you know they did things that I wouldn't even think like I mean how how do you know what to do to how do you plan your baby's death <laughs> before it's happened I mean it's just you, you can't can you so they made sure to take fingerprints um which they had casted in silver which I've got on my necklace they're her fingerprints they just just did that because you know any kind of memory that we could possibly get from them they you know made sure and um you know they arranged the room you know what flowers did I want in the room you know what did I not want in the room the cot you know so they really did try to consider everything that a parent would need you know because you mm. just didn't need that support. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And ha- how long with, did you have with Olivia Grace at the hospice? Um, I want to say close to about four hours. Three right. to four hours she held on. Um, 
which was, I mean, it's, I didn't want her to, she, she, she didn't suffer. Um, they were very good. But it was like, I already knew what was going to happen. And I was so burned out from life on the NICU and seeing the things that I'd seen and having to make the decisions and, you know, signing a DNAR on your 28-day-old baby is just not something anyone should have to do, you know. And I think I just, you're so torn. I wanted her to, I wanted her to hold on and be this miracle. I wanted her mm -hmm. to hold on and and I wanted them to say, call the ambulance back. She's, she's, she's still breathing, you know, get her back to the hospital. And then the other half of me, I just wanted her to just go. So, you know, I could just hold her. But I, I knew that phase was coming. I knew that next phase was coming. I knew I would have to accept that she had passed away. Mm. So the longer she held on, it was just, I, it's, it's so conflicting, confusing, you know. Yeah, I think we always hold on to that little bit of hope, don't we? Even yeah. being told that, that this is the end, that there's still... There's still something there. Your mind still, I mean, hope is lovely, but it also is a mind fuck. Yeah, yeah. And especially because because she had already defied so many things that they said, well, she won't do this and she won't do that. And I mean, she so she opened her eyes. She, she hadn't opened her eyes. And I kept thinking, if she doesn't open her eyes, I think that's her. She's not she's not going to stay, you know, how can you live but never wake up or open your eyes? And I knew that she'd likely be blind because of the brain damage, but she did open her eyes. The little sod waited for me to leave. She did it for my mum. She did it for grandma. <laughs> and I got a phone call with my mum. She's opened her eyes. I thought, of course she has. I'm not, you know, I spent 15 hours a day next to her cot and she chose to wait, to, you know, when my mum had given me a, a break. But I... I felt like that she wants to live. That's her. She's telling us she wants to live. She's really trying. She's really trying. And, you know, I, there was a part of me that thought when we go to the hospice, maybe she will be a miracle. Maybe she will be one of those stories that you read about. And, you know, but they can't fix broken brains yet. No. I'm so sorry. So, the warriorship, we wanted to come and tell you a little bit about it, didn't we, Bex? And in case you're already going, why? We don't want to know about a fucking ship. The warriorship is our online membership for warriors in this community. It's packed full of stuff. So we just want to tell you about some of the stuff. All of the content from all of the courses that we ever run is in the warriorship. So there's loads to get your teeth into. And we are also developing modules for what happens after. But not only that, we've also got a ton of educational workshops running once a month. In the coming months, we have got body positivity workshop, gratitude workshop, and loads, loads, loads more. And on top of that, we also have a resident mental health specialist. And on top of that, if this, that wasn't enough, there's 13 events every month. And there's stuff popping up all the time as well that other people are organising that you can be a part of. So it really is thriving. And all you have to do is head to the link in our bio or visit our website and you can be a part of this too. We'd love to see you there. Gosh, that sounds just 
like torture really having to go through all of that mm. Yeah. Mm. I think it's even now so you know this February I'll be coming up to she would have been five years old I think even still now a lot of the time I, it to me it feels surreal yeah and it's I ha I question I'm like did am I still alive after going through that or was that really not real or because I think you know if our brain was to truly know that pain I don't I mean how would we live through it I think yeah. it puts you in a protective bubble because you know that's I can't think of you know that's it's like the most traumatic thing I can imagine someone going through you know mm -hmm. mm. and I bet you, you don't think you're going to live through it do you and you, no. you don't think you're ever going to enjoy life again or ever going to feel better again no and that's kind of where you know a lot of the you know in my grief process you know I, I was writing anyway but that was a lot of behind why I wrote and released the book that I did because not only did I want that story printed for me to have on my bookshelf so that it, I I didn't want to forget any of the details and it was this reminder that I lived that first year you know and I know that when other new lost mums start this journey and it's just so much and it that it's so painful and it's so overwhelming and it's so scary the, the thought of living feeling this way mm. and you know and I thought well if someone was to read this book and and just know you you will you will survive you know I don't know how you're going to survive but you will mm. so hopefully it offers a little bit of connection and so, yeah tell us tell us a bit more about about the book when did you start writing it and why and and how's it going and all that stuff so I started it I think I might have been home two three weeks from the NICU and I was drunk and I needed to let a lot of pain out of my heart <laughs> so yeah. I opened the laptop and I wrote the very first thing uh, which was the title of the book and it has remained the same you know the whole time and that is a lost mum's journal but very unoriginal <laughs> you know that's what it was a lost mum's journal yeah um, and I just I just wrote and then I'd put the laptop away for a few days and I'd go back and just jot down a few more little things and and every time I did it I I felt because of the way I write I write to her it's all to her um that helped me feel close to her you know yeah and maybe make sense of some of the things that I was feeling um so I I said to myself I'll I will write until her first birthday and then you know if, if I want to carry on that's great but if I don't and and if I need a bit of a rest from it that's that's kind of where I'll and that's where I have closed the you know that's the final chapter in the book is is her first birthday um so yeah it was a year's worth of writing I suppose but then I did nothing with it I was you know life COVID <laughs> um yeah and then January this year I I was like, right, I need to, you know, every year I've said, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. I, I really, I tried to do something for her. Um, but I, I, you know, I did it this year. It's January. I reached out to a little publishing company and they helped me. And it was a lot of back and forth. That part was very stressful. Self-publishing is, is hard. 
there's a lot more that goes into writing and making a book than I ever realized um yeah but the official release date was the 1st of September um and I'm very really really proud of it it's my yeah, oh. sits very very proudly on my book shelf yeah it's lovely it's a lovely memory for Olivia Grace as well um just the fact that you've been able to help other people that have gone through a similar experience or will go through a similar experience it's nice that her life has will has and will contribute to the comfort of others yeah I hope so I really I know there's some you know when you lose a baby and like there are things that you're afraid to say out loud or you question am I crazy is this not is normal I hate that word these days but you know do other people feel this and so all of that all of that I just I wrote it down it's very raw it's you know there's no filter to it it's not sugar-coated it's real it, this is the reality of living life with baby loss um and I really hope that it does help other people I hope it helps the non-loss community too to understand and change some of their you know bullshit expectations on what they think it should be like and at the minute the funeral ends everything's back to normal um but what people don't realize as well is every time someone reads this book and they know her name and see her face and know her story that helps my heart too mm. you know they are instrumental in my healing yeah so yeah the book has definitely it has achieved way more than I ever thought it, it would you know that's amazing Thank and so tell us about how life has been generally for the last five years oh my gosh well my memory is destroyed from grief so um <laughs> it's very up and down as you know mm. the occasions are hard um you know her dates are very very hard I feel a massive shift so soul deep and no one else can see but I feel it you know this anxiety that comes with the countdown to her birthday so for me it will be the first of January something shifts and because I know her birthday is coming um you know I still work I still socialize I still have family life um I'm still I'm living but she is very much still living with me mm -hmm. I don't I'm not moving on I'm just moving forward and I'm choosing to bring her with me you know so a lot of what I do now, it, it's all for her. She is still very much present to me. Um, I make baby loss awareness pieces. Um, you know, I'd like to do more with my writing. I write poetry. I do other lost mums poems for their babies. And that just, it brings me comfort, you know, to mm. do that. Mm. But it's still not without its challenges. Yeah, of course. In so many ways, like five years is five years when you say it, it feels like a long time, but actually it goes past so quickly, doesn't it, in the scheme of things? Yeah. And yeah. obviously last September, I'm guessing, would have been Olivia Grace's start at school. Yes, it was. Was that a big? Was that a, a massive challenge for you? Yes. Last year, I was semi-okay on her birthday um but on her death day it was the worst I think it was actually worse than her first um and I couldn't figure out why and then I think it hit me that 
she wouldn't have been a baby anymore. Mm. You know, I've had this bouncing, full-grown toddler, you know, this four-year-old coming up to go into school. And I think it was this huge, what the hell would my life have looked like mm. if that didn't happen, you know? And and then it's that fear that it's like, wow, yeah, I'm four years into this. But four years isn't that long in a lifetime of missing someone. And the idea of feeling this pain for the rest of my life scares me. Mm. I don't want to get through the next, I don't know, 30, 40 maybe years hurting like this, you know. So, um, yeah, that, that this past one was not a good it was not a good year for me um and I take each one just as they come because people say to me how you know have you thought about what you'd like to do is there something special you'd like to do and I'm like I don't know I I will listen to my heart on the day and I'll do what feels right for me in that moment because I can't predict what grief is going to look like to me yeah in two months um you know so my friends and family are very good they just kind of they follow my lead, they come along for the ride, they let me tell them what I need, which I think is the most important thing when someone's grieving, isn't it? Yeah, mm. that's really helpful. Mm. And how is your partner kind of dealing or dealt with it? Um, me and Olivia Grace's father are not together anymore. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, it's grief. Uh, we separated very soon after she passed away. Right. So... But yeah. you know, I don't don't talk too much about him. But I, you know, I will always say he. I'm so grateful and will always be grateful to him for co-creating the most precious, beautiful baby on this planet. And you know, he loves her with his whole heart. And I wish him all the best. Yeah. Wow. That's it's just um, grief is just such a inexplicable and personal journey isn't it it's mm-hmm. you can't you never know what it's going to throw at you and, and how the, the depth and the intensity of some of those emotions that you've just been describing when you said you know about your soul it, it I could feel that in what you were saying you know I could feel that the the unbelievable depth of your pain is just so I'm so sorry that you're going through all that. Have you um have you had any sort of therapy and, and grief counselling and stuff like that? Or yeah, yeah. I you know when I when I came home from the NICU, I knew that this next phase in my life was going to be so hard, and you know I was going to take any and all help and support I was going to get. Um, you know, so I went straight with petals, um, which the bereavement team arranged, um, and then on and off throughout the years when I've needed that help when I felt myself struggling a bit more maybe than you know and I just pick up some counseling again and just have that person to talk through things you know um because it's it's that there isn't a word to describe you know it's I think grief for a lost parent I mean they already know that it's so different to normal grief they've prove that now that baby loss is on its own standalone you know it's an enduring grief that will likely last a lifetime and you know that love between a mother and their baby it's unconditional it's unique it's a bond that is not broken by death so yeah I I went straight for all the 
anything and everything I could do, support groups, therapy, to get all. And did you find it, I mean, do you find it helpful in those times of real darkness? Yeah, yes, I think so. I mean, no one can take, you know. Yeah, sure. I can't take away someone else's pain and, you know, but it does help to have that safe space to talk. Um, I think everybody needs help anyway. You know, we all need to support each other, you know, so especially with something mm. like this. So sometimes you get so wrapped up in your head, don't you? And yeah. you, you, you start, um, things seem bigger or you, you feel sort of paranoia or just, I don't know, your head, your head does funny things to you. And when you actually verbalize what you're feeling, mm-hmm. it does make sense. And the same with writing as well. Writing, like you said, does help to, to make sense of things. Yeah. So, you know, we would always encourage people to talk and write and share because um, it does, it doesn't take the pain away, but it does whis- um, lift the the weight a little, doesn't it? Yeah, it's finding an outlet that, that works, you know, for you. You know, yeah. I, will get, I can get lost in writing and, and making these things for other people. And that is, for me, that's a good outlet you know so like the creativity we we um we do a bit of that on our on our membership platform and it is a real lovely form of therapy yeah what sort of things is it that you make danny um so i do so this is all quite I, I started all of this stuff really in september um i just think i felt so inspired that i just went for it i started the facebook page the book was released and i opened up a little etsy shop um so I do a lot of work with resin. I do resin art. I went to college for art and design and thought for many years that was a total waste of time because I now work in the medical field. But as it turns out, no. Um, and I do a lot that's, you know, bespoke and it is all baby loss remembrance pieces. Um, I really love to write poetry. Like I said, I offered to write a, a handful of mums poems about their babies just just to do something nice for them and the feedback that I got from that was lovely you know they said how much how how beautiful they were and I just feel so honored when somebody will let me write about their baby and they they tell me about their baby and I know how much that means to them so I feel incredible you know incredibly privileged to be able to do that so those are the sort of things that that I offer people. Oh lovely and it's all in Olivia Grace's memory. Everything I do, everything I make, it's she's there. Yeah, it's really special. Mm, really special. Thank you so much for sharing Olivia Grace's story with us and um and everything you've done as well. And how how can people find you on what's your Etsy shop called? Um Love and Loss OG. Okay. Um I'm a very new little shop. Just, you know, just start and plus I work twelve hour shifts, so time is tricky but um but a lot as well uh you know my Facebook page is The Lost Mum um which anyone can find me on there and it's just I, I like to think it's a very safe honest place you know just for some love remembrance and connection mm. well we'll put the links in the show notes thank you uh, so much thank you Danny it's been really lovely chatting to you and um thank you for having me story thank you all right all the best take care of yourself you too bye will do
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.